My dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, Shalom. In the first Corinthians 11, brethren and sisters, of course, of which we are very familiar, the Apostle Paul gives us the criteria for our memorial meeting each week, where he tells us that there are two things which are essential to that occasion, and the first, of course, is obviously that we should remember the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have this opportunity to consider the atoning work which has been accomplished by Almighty God through his Son. But secondly, of course, the Apostle Paul also says that we have this opportunity to examine ourselves. And the subject that we're actually dealing with this morning gives us a wonderful opportunity to fulfil both those requirements for the memorial meeting. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Of course, we cannot consider the subject without reflecting upon the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is without the shedding of blood that there is no remission of sins. And so it would be impossible to look at this subject without reflecting upon the very work uh, which is the emphasis in the First Corinthians uh, chapter 11. But of course, secondly, in looking at that subject through the Lord's Prayer, we are caused to reflect, brethren and sisters, upon our own lives and to consider our actions as to whether we, in fact, are to receive the forgiveness of Almighty God, for it is upon conditions, and we remember those conditions as we go through this subject this morning. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, the words are that we, that we be forgiven of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that word debts, of course, is a word which means something which needs to be repaid normally. But in the context of Matthew chapter 6, it means something which cannot be repaid. And that's the emphasis of the Lord's Prayer when it says, forgive us our debts. To to forgive us for something which we can never repay. That's quite different, brethren and sisters, to a debt which a person is able to pay and you only have to wait the time that they might be able to do so. But in praying that prayer, we say to our Heavenly Father that we are aware that we are unable to pay the debt which we owe Him. We find the same thing is mentioned for us by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4. And so in that chapter, in Romans 4, we have a wonderful comment by the Apostle Paul on the privilege which we have through the forgiveness which God brings upon us. In Romans 4, reading verses 4 and 5, perhaps going back to get the connection, in verse uh, 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about works as separate from justification. And so he says in verse 4, Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. And he of course is making a comment on those who feel they have earned life eternal. That they feel no debt towards God. They believe that if they have walked in, a, in, the, a command, in his commands, then God owes them life eternal. But he says in verse 5, to him that worketh not, it doesn't mean of course working in the normal sense, it means somebody who works with the aim that they will pay this debt unto God. He that works not but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, 
his faith is counted for righteousness. And so we're reminded there in those words and it goes on to say in verse 7 Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And so in those words we're reminded by the Apostle Paul of that debt, brethren and sisters, of which it is impossible for us, no matter how much we work, how much we take the words of God and try to apply them in our life, we will fail and we will always be in debt to our God. And so it is by grace that we are saved, brethren and sisters. It's not through that which we have earned. In that connection, I'd like to come to Matthew chapter 25 in a very well-known parable of the Lord Jesus Christ, the parable of the five virgins, the five wise and the five foolish virgins, we should say, the ten virgins. And in this chapter, brethren and sisters, we have some details which are very much relevant to the subject we're dealing with uh, this morning because it becomes the answer to that which is spoken by the wise to the foolish uh, in um, a verse, a verse uh, picking up in a minute, verse eight and nine. But brother and sisters, we just cast an eye over this parable for a moment. Firstly, we read that there are ten of them, and ten, of course, in scripture is an important number, for it's the number of completeness. But in the context here, of course, it's five plus five, and that word, that number five, represents grace. And what it's telling us, brethren and sisters, that neither of this group had any more grace bestowed upon them than the other. When the time came for the judgment to take place of these ten virgins, the, the five that were rejected could not claim that God had dealt with them differently than he had, dif- than he had uh, dealt with the other five. He had bestowed equal grace upon both classes. Uh, that's the idea of ten that is given here to us. They took their lamps and so they all had lamps as they went out and it represents the fact of course brethren and sisters that all these are brethren and sisters of Christ. They claim to be the sons and daughters of God and you and I brethren and sisters are in that position because we have a knowledge of the word of God. We'd never have been baptised if it had not been that we have a knowledge and so we all would claim that we we have lamps which have oil in it. But it says that the foolish took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels and with their lamps. But then it tells us in verse 5 that while the bridegroom tarried they all slumbered and slept. And so they went forth in verse 1 to meet the bridegroom. So again we've got a characteristic of all ten of them. So when you put it together all ten of them brethren and sisters had a knowledge of the word of God. They all had lamps. They all had the same grace bestowed upon them and they all went out to meet the bridegroom. So they all claimed at least that they were waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and were ready for him. In other words, there is no distinction whatsoever between the five wise and the five foolish until we come to that little statement that says but they took no oil with them in verse 3. And that really can represent, brethren and sisters, nothing more than the study of the word of God. That subject which we have emphasised in our studies and when we spoke to the children last night, we emphasised it again with the work which the roots do with the tree. 
that there is a need for us to work in, in the context, brethren and sisters, of studying God's word uh, to get from it that which we can then put into practice in our life which is represented by the lighting of that oil in the lamp. And so they took no extra oil. That's the only difference between the two. But then, of course, in verse 6, when the cry came that he was on his, the bridegroom was on his way and they got up, then, of course, the five foolish did not have enough oil. And so they went to the wise in verse 8 and they said, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. And the wise answered, brethren and sisters, in a way that unless we understood this subject, we would puzzle at why they said to the, uh, to the foolish, not so. No, we're not going to give you any oil, lest there be not enough for us and for you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Why would they answer in such a way? Well, brethren and sisters, it's because the wise understood that they would only get to the kingdom, they would only be acceptable to the bridegroom by grace, not by works. And it's a mission by them that even though they had the extra vessel of oil, it was hardly sufficient for themselves, leave alone enough for somebody else. And so in fact it was a comment that was made by very humble bridesmaids or, or virgins who understood that except for the grace of God they could not have life. And so it is with us, brethren and sisters, that as we walk our life in the truth, we individually, and this is where we separate even from husband and wife, we individually have to fill that vessel up with oil. And when we do that, no matter how hard we work at it, brethren and sisters, we end up in the words that we are considering that we still owe God a debt. And that is why they said we have not enough for you and for us. Of course they then say go and go rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while it's hard to understand what that literally meant, certainly brethren and sisters as we see this as a type of the judgment seat of Christ, when we stand before Christ at Sinai, what other answer could we give to a brother or sister who came to us lamenting they had not done enough in their life for study of the word of God how would we answer them? Well, the only thing we could answer, of course, was to say, well, even now, while you have a few minutes left, get down to the word. It's the only thing you could offer. And that's what they said to them. Of course, the position was impossible as far as they were concerned, but what other advice could they give? And so the preparation, brethren and sisters, for the judgment seat of Christ is highlighted in this parable, remembering that we cannot go on into the kingdom, brethren and sisters, until we have first gone through the judgment seat of Christ. And so it's an emphasis upon how we prepare for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and to stand with him. Now in that uh, Romans 4 that we quoted earlier, brethren and sisters, the Apostle Paul is actually quoting from Psalm 32, which was our reading today. And so we come back to Psalm 32 and see where Paul picked up these words, these wonderful words of the attitude of God towards those who have strived in their life to serve him, knowing that they can never repay him for what he is prepared to do for them. And so in Psalm 32 we have the words that are quoted by Paul, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom Yahweh imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. 
And the one penning these words, brethren and sisters, you'll notice the caption tells you that it is a psalm of David. Is one who in this very psalm is referring back to his sin with Bathsheba. And that if it were not, brethren and sisters, for that wonderful blessing of the grace of God, David understood that he could never have life. There was one other psalm that day, or several psalms that David wrote, brethren and sisters, uh, regarding his sin with Bathsheba. And the other psalm particularly is Psalm 51. And I want you to turn with me to that because, again, I think there's a wonderful point here that's brought out by David as he appeals to Almighty God for forgiveness for that which he did, but understanding that even with that forgiveness it was still in effect not enough because there were so many other issues in David's life as in all of our lives that we will always be in debt unto our God. And so we read from verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression, wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. It goes on then, brethren and sisters, of course, and gives us the clue as to why God was prepared to forgive him of even that major sin. Because I acknowledge my sin, my transgressions, and my sin is ever before thee, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He goes on to say, because you are the one that must be justified. And so in his approach unto God, in his admission, brethren and sisters, that it was against God whom he had sinned because he represented God. He represented the word of God. He represented the ecclesia. And in all those things he had failed. And so he appeals unto God for forgiveness. But notice, brethren and sisters, when he's talking of what took place, he says, blot out my transgression in verse 1, wash me from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin in verse 2. Now those words should be familiar to us because they're the words that are actually, of course, come from Exodus 34. They're the words that were given when Moses asked Yahweh as to what his name really meant. He asked for the name of Yahweh to be shown unto him and he was given the character of God. And in those words, of course, the order, brethren and sisters, of that which will be forgiven by God is actually changed slightly. Because God said to Paul, God said rather to Moses, I will forgive your iniquity, transgression and sin. But David turns that around and he says firstly, he will blot out my transgression. Why does he do that? Well, I think there's a wonderful lesson in it, brethren and sisters, because the word transgression actually means rebellion. It means someone who goes quite openly against the will of God. The, word, the next word, the word iniquity, is the word which means the evil disposition. That speaks of our nature. And the word sin, of course, is the word chatar, which means to miss the mark. When we approach unto anybody for forgiveness, if it be our brethren and sisters, whether it be God, we would tend, brethren and sisters, I believe, we would naturally tend to lower, if we possibly could, the seriousness of what we've done. How often has a person excused what they have done by saying, well, you know me, I have a problem in that area. That's really, brethren and sisters, what is meant by miss the mark. It's something that I'm always make, having a problem with. 
But David used the very word transgression which really applies to a person who openly rebels against God. And so in approach unto him he actually said to God, look I know as we would say that we have a nature which is against thee, I'm not using that as an excuse. I have committed an act of rebellion. And that's the words of a humble man, brethren and sisters, a man who understood what he had done to Almighty God. Too often we excuse our nature, our iniquity, and we say to ourselves, if not to God, well, after all, I am human, and I'm going to make mistakes. But David would not come back, brethren and sisters, on that. He came to Yahweh and said, Forgive me when I rebelled against you. And so it was that attitude which is then seen in his approach to God by which God gave him the forgiveness of his sin. And I think there's a powerful lesson for us in this subject of forgiveness, brethren and sisters, that if we won't forgiveness from God, we don't lessen the sin which we commit. We lift it to a, a point at which we say to God, we know the seriousness of what we're doing and therefore we humbly come before thee that we might receive forgiveness. And I believe that's the key as to why uh, David changes that word in his prayer unto Yahweh. The subject, brethren and sisters, of forgiveness is currently a subject which is being discussed probably here in Brisbane. It certainly is in South Australia. It has opened up as one of those subjects which get discussed from time to time and to some extent has become quite a contentious issue amongst us in South Australia. And it's amazing, brethren and sisters, as we talk together, how many are really ignorant of what forgiveness of God is all about, how we can approach it, and what is that forgiveness all about. And the two questions particularly that are being raised are firstly, the conditions by which we are forgiven. And statements are quite, are quite openly said that the, there are no conditions. That is unconditional. We simply uh, approach unto God and God will give us forgiveness. And such an approach, brethren and sisters, shows a lack of understanding God manifestation. A lack of understanding what godliness really is. Because there are conditions. And we ought to know that as brethren and sisters of Christ because the first condition is that we are in Christ. There is no forgiveness, brethren and sisters, for those who are not in Christ. There must be the covering work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We picked that up in our, our studies where we looked at the word wicked, or rather the word sinner, as distinct from the word wicked or ungodly. We, brethren and sisters, as the sons and daughters of God, baptised into the Lord Jesus Christ, are not sinners. True, we still sin. No one denies that. But we have, through the power of prayer, we have the opportunity for the forgiveness of that sin. And the word sinner, when used in the New Testament particularly, is of a person who has no opportunity to change that. They remain sinners. But brethren and sisters, we have the opportunity through Christ to receive forgiveness. And so Brother Thomas very beautifully points out in Elpis Israel that distinction between the sinner and the saint. We are not sinners, brethren and sisters, we are the saints of God because we have an approach unto him for forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. So condition one is that we must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a condition and one that doesn't change. 
But as we look at the subject, and we're not going to look at the subject fully, of course, in an exhortation, but as we look at the subject, brethren and sisters, of prayer and forgiveness, because they're hand in hand, we find that there are other conditions that are necessary, and one of them, as we've picked up from the story of David, is an honesty before God. And I think so often, brethren and sisters, and I'm using myself as the example, so often we are not prepared to be 100% honest with God, as though he doesn't know what's happened. And we, rather than name the sin particularly, we lessen the effect by saying, forgive me of my sin, in a general sense. We should use that term, brethren and sisters, because we realise that we are not always aware of our sins. So therefore, in that sense, we ask for forgiveness of whatever we have done, which is opposed to him. But we also, scripturally, brethren and sisters, should, as David did, make it clear before him we know what we have done and bring that before him. So another condition is that we are honest in prayer. And if we're not, brethren and sisters, there is no forgiveness. The same, of course, is that we make that endeavour to change. There is no forgiveness, brethren and sisters, for someone who consistently does the same thing for someone who merely uses the words forgive me to God as an excuse to get through that day and to do the same thing again the next day. That is unacceptable for God. So we can go on and on and we can find that there are conditions after conditions that apply to the forgiveness of sins. We ought to be aware of them, brethren and sisters, and never treat it lightly. Much time in our prayer should be spent in bringing before God those sins that we know we have sinned in. We should also remember, brethren and sisters, that being mortal, being human, there are many things we don't even know of which we have done which are wrong. And it's not always sins, is it, of commission. There are sins of omission too, brethren and sisters. It is a sin to go through a day without coming to the word of God. And those sins of omission also ought to be brought before Almighty God. And if all those are not covered, then, brethren and sisters, we will find that at the judgment seat there is too much there. And although we can never pay back to God what we owe him, there is a limit to what God will allow us to owe him, as it were. And one of the other conditions, and this now brings us back, of course, to the Lord's Prayer, is that we forgive others. And the Lord's Prayer makes that so clear because it says, forgive us of our debts as, as we forgive those who are our debtors. Now two things come out of that, brethren and sisters. Firstly, the word as means that we have to do it if we won't forgiveness from God. If we are not prepared to forgive our brethren, then, brethren and sisters, there is no forgiveness for us. We're not here talking, brethren and sisters, of a position where a person has openly rebelled against the word of God it has perhaps become a matter of fellowship between us and so forth that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about brethren and sisters who are in fellowship with each other there must be with us brethren and sisters the position that we are prepared to forgive but you see the Lord Jesus Christ uses the same word for our forgiveness to those than he, as he does towards God's acceptance of our sins. It's a debt which cannot be paid. And again, I'm sure, brethren and sisters, in our dealings with each other, we're probably prepared to forgive a brother if somewhere along the line he makes up for what he did. 
But this is telling us that even in debts which can never be repaid between us, we must forgive our brethren. Otherwise, brethren and sisters, there will be no forgiveness for us. And so the, the, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are so powerful in regard to that subject. And, of course, we ought to be aware of that. The other question that is asked in regard to sin, or the comment that is often made, is when are our sins forgiven? Are they forgiven immediately, brethren and sisters, we ask for forgiveness? Or are they forgiven really, in real essence, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns? Well, to me, brethren and sisters, there's no doubt. The latter is correct. It is foolish to talk, although we know that as we offer prayers unto God, we receive forgiveness. It is foolish to talk of whether we do, whether, whether that is an important issue or not. Because the only important issue is that in the end, we are forgiven of everything. It's not a case of coming before the judgment seat and the Lord Jesus Christ said, well, look, in your life I've forgiven you of 30%. I'm now going to forgive you, uh, of a, uh, therefore you won't be in the kingdom because only 30% of your sins will be forgiven. It won't be a case of saying, well, look, I've added it all up, the ones I've forgiven you, and it's actually 75%, so you're right, you can get in. It's a case of 100% forgiveness or nothing. And therefore it's foolish to argue before we stand before the judgment seat of Christ as to at what part in our life are we forgiven of our sins. And there's a very real danger, I believe, in harping on the fact that simply by praying we have forgiveness immediately because that does tend to lean towards the, the attitude of saying, well, therefore I'm clear for tomorrow. And I think that is often the case. I'm sure it is, brethren and sisters, because particularly in our dealings with each other, dealing with our brethren and sisters, we would not talk to each other and we would not, not approach each other in the way that we do if we, we, um, uh, really, if we uh, believe that we have to answer for that sometime in the future. And sometimes we can use, as the church does, the fact that we are forgiven of our sins as an excuse to get rid of that day and to perhaps go on and do exactly the same thing the next day, knowing that all we have to do is conclude the day and say, ah, forgive me and we're forgiven again. It's the end result, brethren and sisters, and that's the only way that Yahweh works. And when he talks in the terms of being forgiven today, that's the way God is viewing it. God is saying you'll be forgiven today, the results of which he knows when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now I want to quote from Brother Thomas in regard to this in the book Anastasis. You probably noticed I went to my bag and I had forgotten it. Went down and got up and found I just had the cover, not the book. So uh, I couldn't quote from that. But I'll, this is page 22 of Anastasis, of course, where Brother Thomas deals particularly with the resurrection. But on the subject of judgment, he says, When are venial sins committed by saints forgiven? As soon, says Protestant tradition, as they are repented of and confessed, this it regards as giving account that it might be added, and it might be added as settling the account to the satisfaction of the debtor, who indignantly repudiates the idea of having to give some account at the judgment seat, which he regards as settling a debt twice over. There is no sense in it, says he, and if such is the order of things, I would rather be in the grave and never leave it more. Now that might sound like an exaggeration, but just recently I spoke to a brother who believed that his sins were literally 
forgiven, forgotten, as he prayed every time, and there was no possibility of them ever being brought up again before God. And when we pointed out a few scriptures, he said, well, I'm not really happy with that, uh, as though to say, well, he didn't like the idea that God has planned out. And so he says there that they see it as a uh, fulfilling of the debt. It is no use, however, getting fretted at the deity's plans and purposes. There's no point in saying, well, that's uncomfortable for me. I would like my sins to be totally forgotten and washed away and no one knows anything about them. He says, there's no use fretting at the deity's plans and plan and purposes. The question is not what we would rather do, but what he has appointed. He has answered the question in the Mosaic parable, which is the pattern of the things in the heavens. In this he shows that while the high priest or the advocate is in the most holy place, the people are looking, uh, the people are without, engaged in confession and prayer, waiting and looking for his appearing. They knew not whether, <coughs> they knew not whether their confession of sins and supplications for forgiveness were favourably responded to or not until the priest came forth to bless them in the appointed form. Upon the pronouncement of the benediction, which was the judgment in the case, they were relieved of all anxiety and were now prepared to rejoice before Almighty God in the ensuing Feast of Tabernacles. Thus, as it was appointed for men once to die, uh, symbolically entering in through the veil and sacrificial blood, but after this judgment, so Christ, who was once led forth to bear the sins of many, shall appear unto them, who are looking for him a second time without sin unto salvation. This is then the divine plan. The advocate of the saints has been for many centuries in the most holy, in all of which long period the saints have been praying without and sending up as incense supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to deity through Christ. And while thus engaged, waiting and looking for his appearance, to pronounce the blessing or to withhold it according to the conditions specified in the word. When he comes forth to judgment, he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts and then the praise shall be to each one from the deity, the manifestation of character first and the praise afterwards if deserved. Brother Thomas, I believe, is quite correct in his comments which he makes there. Brethren and sisters, we really need to think about it and to see the position clearly in our own minds. Because if we have a reluctance to any of our sins being ever brought up again, and they may not, brethren and sisters, God and his Son are not vindictive. They are not there, brethren and sisters, to keep us out of the kingdom. They are there to get us into the kingdom. They are there because they want us to be in the kingdom. They, in that sense, will be on our side when we finally come to judgment. But, brethren and sisters, if it is needed for our preparation for the kingdom, as a last step that these, some of these issues need to be brought up and gone over again, God will do it. And we must seriously think along the lines that if we find that a problem, then we haven't learnt the lesson. And as one brother said to me, if God's going to bring up any of those past sins that I believe are forgiven, I don't want to be there. And I said to him, well, unless you are prepared to allow God to bring them up, he will. 
If you are prepared for God to bring everything out in the open, he probably doesn't need to. But if you feel in yourself that, no, there's things I'd like to be kept from my brethren and sisters and almost in a sense from God, I don't want them brought up again, then in all possibility they will be brought up for that very reason because that's a problem to you. It shows, brethren and sisters, that we are not humbled enough that we can go into the kingdom of God. And all of us will finally be brought into the situation that when we go into the kingdom of God, all of us will appreciate, we will appreciate the wonderful blessing of the grace of God that we are there. And no one will go into the kingdom, I can assure you, to say, well, at least this issue or that issue wasn't brought up. We ought to think about those things, brethren and sisters, because in the very near future we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if we look at it properly, then, brethren and sisters, won't you come with me to the words of the Apostle Paul in the Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9? Because this is the mode of thinking that we have to develop. And I find this amazing in the Apostle Paul that he could actually look forward to standing at the tribunal seat of Christ. In the second Corinthians chapter 5, of course in these earlier verses we know he talks of the change of the body and how we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is in heaven in verse 2. And so he looks forward to the coming of Christ and he says in verse 8, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labour that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. He can only be talking of the judgment seat. He can't be talking of the kingdom as something we can be absent for and be accepted. He's talking of the judgment seat. And Brother Thomas translates it in his translation from the faith in the last days, whether present at his tribunal seat or absent from it, we might be accepted of him. So it's saying on the one hand that we live our lives every day as though we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. But he says back in verse 8 that he's willing to be there, that he wants to be, that we must stand and appear in verse 8 before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one, he says, may receive the things done in his body according to what he had done, whether good or bad. But there's the positive outlook, brothers and sisters, of the Apostle Paul. He knew that without that final cleansing, without that final total honesty in our life, we could never go into the kingdom of God. And we ought, therefore, brethren and sisters, to view the judgment seat in that light. We pointed out the other night, the other day, that it's something akin, although this, of course, is, is a very insufficient anomaly, uh, uh, um, expression, but it is a little like something that we are not looking forward to but we know in the end that it is good for us. We have a, an aching tooth which is uh, giving us trouble. We are not looking forward to going to the dentist at all but we know full well that once we have been through that then we will be relieved of the pain and so it is in regard to that judgment seat. A necessary thing that we might ultimately be able to go into the kingdom with an absolutely clear conscience that God and our brethren and sisters around us know everything and yet you have been accepted by Almighty God. Go with me back to Isaiah chapter 26 where Isaiah says something similar, that there is an attitude which we should have as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, an attitude of appreciating that it is necessary before we can have life. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 26 
verses 8 and 9. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Yahweh, we wait. That's the, as it is in the, um, uh, the, uh, the Hebrew. It's future tense. So in the ways of the judgments of Yahweh, we wait for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. And that's, of course, in the context of verse 8, the way of judgments. We have desired thee in the night, yea, with the spirit within me will I seek thee early, for when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. And we should not, brethren and sisters, uh, take those words in verse 9 and apply them only to the world. We're exactly the same. And we will never ever appreciate the righteousness of God until we feel the judgments of God as they should have been meted out upon us. It's then, brethren and sisters, that we will realise that we have a debt which could never be forgiven and yet it could never be repaid rather. But God is prepared to forget and that we can forgive, forget and we go into the kingdom as immortals with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful privilege brethren and sisters indeed. And so we are called upon then in the context of the Lord's Prayer that we are to forgive our brethren. So part of that preparing for the kingdom, brethren and sisters, is to remove that obstacle. To remove an obstacle which is going to come up before, uh, going to come up with us anyway if we don't do something about it. We pointed that out the other night. There is no way in the world that God is going to allow a brother or sister to go into the kingdom if they have a hatred for each other. And if there are issues between them which they have not forgiven, they will have to be sorted out before we're able to go through into the kingdom of God. Have a look at Matthew 18, because Matthew 18, of course, we love to quote in regard to how people deal with us, usually in the context of how they deal with us personally. They have not used Matthew 18. But Matthew 18 has, of course, a lot of exhortation in it and doesn't just deal with how we are to approach brethren. The verses generally that we know of, of course, are those verses from verse 15 in regard to sin, which I should, I think, make the comment, we must remember that is only on fellowship issues. I mean, if you want to approach a brother on other issues, yes, you're fulfilling the principle perhaps, but the command is only towards those who have a fellowship issue because it says if they won't listen you eventually withdraw fellowship from them. So if you're going to talk about Matthew 18, it can only be fully applied or pressure, the pressure can only put on a person to apply it if in fact it is such a serious issue that eventually uh, one would remove out of fellowship. In fact, the truth of the matter is, if it's a non-fellowship issue, then we ought to, in the terms of the prayer, we ought to be prepared to forgive one another rather than take the issue up at all. And so there's a principle there and we ought to be very clear about that in Matthew 18. It's only dealing with issues which eventually you take to the ecclesia and you withdraw fellowship from them on that issue. But as that chapter unfolds, we come to other areas, brethren and sisters, which are as exhortational. Verse 23, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king which would take account of his servants. When he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, that I will, and I will pay thee all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. That's the, the, uh, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment seat and the acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ of those who are aware that they cannot possibly repay what they owe. But then that same servant went out and found one of his servants which owed him a hundred pence. Now notice the difference. In verse 24 he owed him 10,000 talents. We can only imagine in that day that was an absolutely impossible debt for him to pay. An impossible debt. And yet his master, his Lord, forgave him. But now this servant went out and someone owed him a hundred pence, which we know, which owed him a hundred pence. And of course a penny we know was a, was a day's wages. So it was in the scope of paying. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet, besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison until he could pay, not, that he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were sorry, and went and told their Lord all that was done. And his Lord, after they had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all thy debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest thou not also have compassion on thy fellow servant? even as I have pity on thee. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him unto the tormentors till he could pay all that was due unto him. So likewise all, likewise shall my heavenly Father do also to you if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespass. There, brethren and sisters, is the divine outline of what is meant in the Lord's Prayer that we forgive others of their debts. And I want to conclude, brethren and sisters, on that theme because it is our attitudes to each other, brethren and sisters, which will be the final test as to whether we can have a place alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the very chapter which we normally read on a Sunday morning, or should we say very often read on a Sunday morning as we partake of the emblems. And sometimes brethren like to go back to verse 1 of chapter 11 and read firstly, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And then move into the memorial section. And while that principle is not right, not wrong, brethren and sisters, it's not what Paul is really saying. Because when he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ, he's harping back to what he said in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 33. Even as I please all men in all things not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they might be saved. Be ye followers of me as I am of Christ. And that's his point. When we come here on a Sunday morning, there is no better time, brethren and sisters, to reflect upon this very subject of mercy because we would not even be here and it would be impossible to, of course, be in the kingdom unless it be for the mercy of God through his Son there the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ as he laid down his life that we might have life. That's the ultimate, brethren and sisters, that's paid on behalf of someone else. He did mention it earlier in that chapter. If you go back to verse 24, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. This, of course, there in, in italics because it's looking after each other. That's what he means when he said, be ye followers of me as I am of Christ. And when we come together at the memorial meeting, 
There is no better time, more, more powerful time to reflect upon that as we come together as the body of Christ. So then when Paul deals with the emblems later on, he refers to it and likens it to the body of Christ, remembering that we are all here together and he ends, brethren and sisters, his dialogue on that very note. Because when he comes through into verse 33, he says, Wherefore, my brethren? So what he has talked about in chapter 10, where he introduces the emblems, now he's dealt with in chapter 11, he now says, Wherefore? He brings it all together. He says, This is what it's all about. My brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. The word tarry literally means to look after the other person. It's translated by the Rotherham translation as welcome one another. And so, brethren and sisters, that attitude to each other, the attitude to our brethren and sisters as part of the body of Christ is so essential. And and this morning, as we come around the emblems, as each Sunday morning, we have that ideal opportunity to reflect upon our attitude to others, realising through the Lord's Prayer But if we're not prepared, brethren and sisters, to forgive them for that which they have done against us, then we will not receive forgiveness and a place in the kingdom of God. Let's conclude by going back to Psalm 32, where we started from. And as we go back to that chapter, we find, brethren and sisters, these beautiful words of the uh, the psalmist as he writes in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, Mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto Yahweh and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Verse 11 Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice ye righteous and shout for joy all ye that are upright in heart.